Welcome to Unraveling the Anthropocene, Race, Environment, and Pandemic, a podcast series brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective, or LAC, at the Pennsylvania State University. As an interdisciplinary group, we promote visionary scholarship in the humanities, we build community across different fields of study, and we highlight the ways that different disciplines inform and shape one another. You can find more information about our previous events on our website, sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic this year, we have developed this podcast series as an intervention into our global ecological emergency. In our discussions with scholars, activists, artists, and community members, we address how global ecological crises both impact and are impacted by political turmoil, widespread outbreaks of infectious disease, and racial violence. Hi, and welcome back to Unraveling the Anthropocene. I'm Marivet Tabor. And I'm Hannah Matangos. Today, we will have a conversation with Eliza Evans and her activist art project entitled All the Way to Hell. Born in a Rust Belt steel town and raised in rural Appalachia, Eliza Evans experiments with construction materials, plastic, trees, wire, electronics, data, and bureaucracy to tease out the impact of past events on current circumstances and to let the future unfold unscripted. Evans holds an MFA from SUNY Purchase in Visual Art and a PhD in Economic Sociology from the University of Texas at Austin. Her work has been exhibited in Santa Fe, Austin, Portland, Oregon, and New York. She is also a Bronx Museum AIM Fellow. Eliza, welcome to Unraveling the Anthropocene. We're excited to have you as our guest in this episode. Could you tell us a bit about how this project was born and how you came up with the title All the Way to Hell? Sure. Um, I, I'd first like to say thanks for inviting me here. And I'm, I'm really delighted to be a part of this, this really important project. So thanks. All the Way to Hell. Yeah, it sounds a little flippant or glib. The language is rooted in uh, common law which governs property law in the U.S. So lawyers would call it the ad coelum doctrine, which means people in the U.S. who own property own it all the way to heaven, ad coelum, and all the way to hell, ad inferos. And at the time these, these laws were put into place, uh, it was, you know, before air travel, so these days, you know, all the way to the heavens actually means 400 feet. Um, and, and beyond that, it is regulated by the federal government. Uh, but that's not true with all the way to hell. And we call that land below the subsurface property mineral rights. And the U.S. is really unique in the world for allowing private citizens to own mineral rights. So if there's anything valuable under, underneath, and in the U.S. that means oil and gas, but it also could be silver or gold or molybdenum or any, any valuable commodity uh, can be owned and, and sold. And the, the rationale was uh, this would encourage westward expansion. If, if you told people to head to the hills and said they owned it, you know, to the skies and, and beneath, they would be more likely to move west. 
So this was definitely a, a policy decision to aid, you know, the the settlement of the West and the the spread of the empire, if you will. Um, and it's still that way. The only other instance of this that I'm aware of elsewhere in the world are in very small parts of Canada for roughly the same reasons. Apart from that, I believe uh, mineral wealth is managed by the state in other parts of the, of the world. And, and of course, you know, the minerals, uh, you know, underneath our parks and, and you know, federal lands is, is managed by the federal government and then state government manages their, their own properties. So the, the title itself is supposed to be evocative of, of this sculptural space that you know, I'm, I'm creating through um, pieces of paper. Yeah, so, so that's where all the way to hell the phrase comes from. But in, in how I am using it is as an umbrella for a variety of different interventions and projects uh, to uh, intervene uh, and, and preempt uh, fossil fuel development on private land in the U.S. Yeah, and you mentioned this um, sculptural aspect of your project as something that's, you know, below the surface of the earth itself, but then also in creating this paper trail. So I'm curious in how you describe the project as an activist art project. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you reflect a bit more on how you understand the art aspect of the project? Sure. Well, there, there, there two ways. One, one is, you know, I, I am a, a visual artist by training, uh, specifically sculpture. And it, it, it occurs to me that we look at land and real estate through, you know, maps and documents. And, you know, if we're lucky enough to even think about buying a house, you look at the, the plot the house is built on and how close is it to the neighbors. And when we think of it in two-dimensional space, when you know, even in New York City, you know, it, you you the you look at the floor plan, but so much of what creates the space is the ceiling height. So that you know, you know, our body, you know, our bodies move through space, and that's how we experience the world. You know, that's such a basic thing. But here, uh, we do not think of the subsurface as three-dimensional space, you know, we, you know, beyond perhaps subway lines and, and underground utilities, but it's vast. And in theory, people who own mineral rights own those rights to the center of the earth. You know, that's in theory, it's never been tested because we don't have the, the ability to access anything that deep. But the fossil fuel industry uh, their technology is, is improving every year. And now terrestrial exploitation of uh, fossil fuel reserves can reach 20,000 feet. That's massive. You know, Everest is 28,000 feet. So just by comparison. So what I'm doing through this project is activating this three-dimensional space. Uh, and I, I guess I should say, you know, what, what I'm doing is I'm taking uh, just very concretely uh, a mineral property that I inherited in Oklahoma. It's three acres, which in uh, the language of the oil industry is nothing. It's a tiny property. And I'm giving it away to as many people as possible. When I talk about it, I said, you may end up only 
owning a, a few, you know, like say a dozen square feet, but it goes all the way to the center of the earth. So this will be the biggest thing any of us will ever own. Uh, and and I, I think this is legitimately exciting. When I have showed this work so far, I actually put next to the documentation that would transfer ownership uh, well core samples. Even though it's been in a gallery, I want to you know I want to encourage people to touch it and get like get in touch with the materiality. It's not just a document; it's actual space and things. And, and really what we're talking about are, you know, very old forests and plant life, mostly that over time has been ground into, uh, you know, oil and natural gas deposits. Um, so these well core samples, which are, you know, like these tall cylindrical, uh, they look like rocks that the oil company pulls out of the ground just to see what's there. So it's kind of a hard drive of sorts. It, you know, there's information there, but it, you can also touch it and and say, oh, this came from 15,000 feet below the surface or 2,000 feet below the surface. So for COVID, this has uh, been a almost a 100% virtual project, which is not how I originally envisioned it. But the the one gallery exhibition that this has been in, at least those folks who saw the work could interact with it tactily as well as, you know, conceptually. Um, and then, you know, this is, this work is in the vein of, you know, art activism. You know, I, I think uh, one influence is Amy Balkin's public smog work where she bought up emission credits and then retire them and at least conceptually creating air parks over certain geographies all over the world. Not in terms of direct activism, but in terms of the presenting information almost in a clearly didactic way. Uh, we have, you know, Hans Hacke's work on the Shapolsky uh, Manhattan real estate holdings, where he you know, on a, on a museum wall displayed how tenement uh, owners in the Lower East Side of New York kind of traded properties to maximize tax benefits and to uh, disadvantage the people who lived there. I mean, you couldn't get away with that project now, but when he did it in the 70s, it was a very powerful illustration of how, you know, those with resources and power, you know, you know repeatedly disadvantaged those without. And this project does have a little bit of that didactic quality. Um, so I'm interested a bit in the reception of your project. Um, in your description of the project, you state mm -hmm. that the aggressive fragmentation of the property mm -hmm. through the distribution of mineral rights will inhibit fossil fuel interests in it. Mm -hmm. Um, so how has been the reception of your work, not just by the community, but mm -hmm. also by corporate parties that are interested in extractivism? Have you received any strange or negative reactions? Uh, not as yet. And, and there are a couple of reasons for that. But I, I will tell you that I had to go, I had to have conversations with 12 to 15 lawyers mm -hmm. to even get the legal assistance that I needed to make this project happen. Oh, wow. Because no one wanted to touch it, even activist lawyers, even environmental lawyers, because 
uh, oil and gas is huge. Mm-hmm. No one wants to go up against it as directly, but also the oil, the laws governing oil and gas extraction are so arcane that only oil and gas lawyers really have access to that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I had to, I had to reach out to so many lawyers uh, just to piece together the whole picture. Yeah, so so I don't, I haven't received any nasty grams from <laughs> from drilling companies, but also, so the, the this idea was just the idea was curated into a show in a New York gallery. You know, the curator reached out to me in March, and she wanted the idea. She was going to put it in the show no matter what, and I said, but it, this is going to be real, and so. You know, it was installed, I believe, sometime in June. And because of the COVID, it actually stayed up through September. So while this piece of paper was on a wall, you know, in a gallery, the entire project, the mechanics of the project were evolving at a, at a fairly rapid rate. So when I designed it, I thought, oh, I'm going to sell my mineral rights for something, you know, easily accessible individuals and just it'll be a couple year project and you know after COVID I'll go meet people and and each person who signed on would get their own deed and I'd file it with the county clerk in Oklahoma and you know they're filing it's $25 a head you know per deed filing I thought okay so you know 40 50 bucks might cover all the costs then through uh sometimes lawyers are heroes (laughs) um and accountants are heroes. Uh, I was informed that I couldn't do that because mineral rights are securities and selling them without SEC licenses is a felony. So I could not do that. So I very quickly had to regroup. Yeah, you don't <laughs> um, want to be a criminal. <laughs> no, no, I'm no interest in, in being a felon. But here's the weird thing. Oil and gas folks can trade mineral properties all day long because in the law, they are exempted. So when you and I talk about mineral rights, we're talking about securities. When they talk about mineral rights, they're just talking about property and they don't have to have any special, you know, regulatory permissions to do so. So that made me mad. And so my job, I'm an artist, you know, I think artist's job is just to figure stuff out. And so now what I'm doing, uh, which is actually, I'm really glad it worked out this way everybody goes on the same deed, which I have not filed yet. So uh, I have over 300 participants so far. I could have filed the deed, but I actually wanted to leave it open to see what what kind of participation or interest this podcast might generate. So I'll file it in January or February. I would love to do it in person. I would love to walk into the county clerk's office in Oklahoma and hand them uh, what they will see as a stink bomb. You know, it's a, they, I, I can guarantee you they have never seen a deed with over 300 names on it. But, you know, I, I've been on the phone. They have to accept it. They have to accept it if there were, if there were a million names on it. But it doesn't mean that I won't have to activate my lawyer. Once the deed is filed, that is when it could potentially get the attention of the people who want to drill. And so it's just kind of... It's kind of like an activist organization, you know, 
knows that a, mi a mining company or a forestry company is going to go, you know, slaughter a nearby mountain. And so they'll cut down a bunch of trees and put them over the road. That is essentially what I'm doing here. Um, except this is not civil disobedience. What <laughs> I, I kind of uh, characterize is this particular intervention as uncivil obedience. Because it, it, I've done the best of my ability to be scrupulously uh, uh, adherent to the law, because mm -hmm. that's the real power of this, is taking all those tools that have advantaged uh, the fossil fuel extractors and, and using them against them uh, to assert a different opinion about these resources. And I have to say, this did not have to be a participatory project. Um, I could have taken the names and home addresses of the top thousand oil executives and put them on this deed and filed it. I do not need their permission. And it would have had the same bureaucratic effect. And it would have stopped them, or at least been an impediment. But by making it participatory and asking people, uh, to sign up if they're interested, uh, it really kind of kind of unpacks this big mystery. How how do the oil companies get access to this private land? We because what we hear about are the exploitation of public resources, the public parks, you know, Anwar in Alaska, you know, the Barriers Monument, and these are all really important, you know, national assets that a lot of us would like to see protected but we see, feel a little powerless to do so. But on private land, it's a private decision. And so I'm just asking others to join me in making this decision. So the, so the pushback may not come at all because it could be that the agents for the companies take one look at that rat's nest. And these agents are typically contractors. They're gonna look at this and just walk away <laughs> because it's expensive to reach out to all of these people to attempt to negotiate leases and they have to prove to the state that they're trying to do this. Uh, and you know, it's, it's time and time is money. And fracking is very expensive. I mean, they're losing their shirts already as it is. That doesn't mean they'll be losing money forever. But right now, uh, this particular intervention is adding just one more layer of expenses and therefore making it look more unattractive. But this is just one little piece of property in one state. And uh, I just wanted to drive it to a conclusion to see if it works. And I think it does. I'm pretty confident that, uh, and I really won't know. That, that, that will be the evidence of this project working is if I do get the legal nasty gram from you know, yeah. the oil co. <laughs> and, th and then that will go on a gallery wall. That might be my biggest artistic achievement. Yeah. Yeah, so you already have like 300 something participants. Um, so for those of us who would like to get involved, how do we get involved? Uh, <laughs> do we go to your website? Um, yes. yeah, and well, also, are there any limitations? Like, do you have to be a citizen? Yes, that's a, that's a really great question. Unfortunately, that is the case. Uh, again, this is something that is, you know, state law governs property law. Uh, so this could vary from state to state, but in Oklahoma, mineral right owners do have to be either citizens or permanent residents. So it is open to that. 
Oh, okay. So how does one participate? Yeah, it's all the way to hell.com. I couldn't believe the URL was available. Um, <laughs> but I got it. And, and so uh, anybody can go there, check out the materials or and, and feel free to reach out to me with any questions, because uh, I've tried to keep it as simple as possible. And just sign up. And then you'll, you know, you, you know, you're, Anyone who wants to, their name and address will, will go on the deed and be filed with the county clerk. But that, that is not the only way to participate. Uh, I have, I, I've been talking to everybody. <laughs> I'll talk to fishing clubs, knitting groups. <laughs> uh, love talking to students. People in their 20s and 30s, not necessarily students, but millennials, Gen Z, who are very pessimistic pessimistic about their ability to own any property at all that has turned out to be a big motivator which uh, is a totally uh, rational thing to say so people are actually excited about owning things regardless of the, the the conceptual content of the project yeah so I talk to people visit university campuses whenever possible communication is is what this project is about right now it, it's evolving uh, yeah, so check out allthewaytohell.com and, and I'm happy to answer any questions if anyone is a little hesitant or wants, wants clarification about a few things. And I'll just say, I really thought more people would ask me, do we have to pay property taxes? <laughs> <laughs> two people, two people out of those 300 asked me that and the answer is no. So, which is great. So you can put your name on the document and literally walk away, which might be in terms of achieving the goals of the project, uh, might be the best thing. Yeah, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no one is obliged to, if, if fossil fuels do uh, reach out to subsequent owners, and, and I will retain a tiny piece myself along with, I'll have that, you know, one three hundredth of the, the property to, uh, if anyone gets any mail, uh, you don't have to do anything with it. You can. You're, I mean, anyone is, is, I mean, this is not collectively owned. It is, it will be, it is all individually owned. So, so if you, if you sign up and own one three hundredth of this property, it's yours. You can give it away yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are there any activist or artist initiatives that you collaborate with for this project? That's a great question. Uh, the short answer is not yet. I have some things in the works. There, there is an outdoor exhibit planned. Well, it was actually planned for this last year, but we all understand how things get shifted. Uh, working with a bunch of artists in the same vein on ecological issues and different ways to intervene in systems to create a shared desired future. So in, in terms of thinking through projects, you know, Tal Beery is a good friend of mine. He's a co-founder of Occupy Museums as well as Eco Practicum. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that particular effort that he's shepherding in the, uh, upstate New York uh, has been really important to me. Then conceptually, you know, I'm not the first one to, you know, divide a large resource into smaller pieces as an artwork. Agnes Dennis 
had a mountain in Finland that she uh, planted and then transferred the uh, ownership of each individual tree to individuals and families, which become an heirloom that they pass down. That show in New York, uh, I showed with Aviva Romani, and she is currently uh, conducting a, a project called the Blued Trees Symphony, which is about painting trees with musical notation over large swaths of land that just happen to be in the pathway of pipelines. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's beautiful. A couple, a, couple of her, a couple of her sites are in Pennsylvania, so you, you definitely should check out uh, her project. I mean, you'd probably be interested anyway, but it uh, would be contextually relevant. Yeah, th there's um, more conceptual, uh, a, a contemporary artist, Alan Ruiz, who's also an architect, is doing things with air, air rights in urban areas. I think he called that, that project, I believe, is called Spatial Alchemy. You know, I think there's a long history of artists using law and bureaucracy to, um, as both provocation and to, to get a very different concrete result than the system otherwise would have produced. Could you tell us a bit about your next project, which looks at mineral rights in Pennsylvania? I understand that this project is still in its incipient stages, but are there any insights you'd like to share with our listeners as you investigate mineral rights in Pennsylvania? And how does your new project relate to All the Way to Hell? Do you see any differences between the Oklahoma and the Pennsylvania contexts? Yeah, thanks for that. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. Uh, I'm sure it will evolve, but I'll, ju I'll just share with you where we are now. I don't think the universe speaks to me directly very much, <laughs> but uh, I, I, um, I did get a message when, you know, I, I am... Uh, you know, I'm hanging out with my folks for COVID. And as it happens over the summer, my mother received a series of letters about a mineral property in Pennsylvania. And she was completely befuddled. She's like, Pennsylvania, you know, my family has no association with Pennsylvania at all. You know, my father's family came from Pennsylvania. And she just thought because she, my mother has a very common name that they just got confused about you know which Nancy they were they were looking for and so I just called them I, I called the agent who signed the paper I'm like what what is this and it was very clear to me that this property actually came through my deceased father Fam this is a family I know nothing about because he, he my father was abandoned by his adopted father so it was that adopted father's background and it just became very intriguing with me because I know the end point is my mother and the beginning point is an adopted ancestor of mine, a woman owned 10 acres and she willed it to her four daughters, which is extraordinary given the time. Yeah. And it all just disappears. And so the, the fracking company had to completely reconstruct this genealogy and they traced that property to a minimum of 80 descendants, 80 for a 10 acre property, but they're not gonna tell us anything about it because they consider my family tree proprietary. So, so this project is 
is going to replicate specific to the Pennsylvania case, uh, but it's gonna be a little tougher because we don't have title. So I'm gonna go beg people for money <laughs> to go do some legal, legal work uh, so that we can establish title on our own independently of the oil company and then get, get that piece of paper from my mother who has agreed <laughs> to contribute it to this project. Um, and, and then replicate, you know, share this, uh, you know, give away for free rights to this even tiny, tinier. I think my estimate is she owns between two and 400 square feet, <laughs> you know, which is a tiny amount of, of land, but then give it away to whoever wants it. But I also wanted to use that work that we're going to have to do to go find these 80, you know, more than 80 relatives and go talk to them because I know already that there are members of this family who have summer homes on the Cape and there are members of this family who are barely getting by in the, in the hills of Appalachia. And, and there are so many stories and how the descendants relate to this property, again, that they had no idea existed. I think it could open up some interesting uh, conversations about, you know, white settlement, white privilege. Yeah. And this, when this, there are stakes, uh, you, you, you raise the idea of, you know, some of these descendants may think they found a Picasso in the attic. I can guarantee you that's not the case. <laughs> there may be some benefit, but the, my mother was offered by this company $24 for her, for her piece of this property. And, and yeah, which is obviously laughable. It's not even worth the stamp on the envelope. Um, but when people think, oh, there's, there's, oil and then their hills, you know, and uh, especially if they need the money. So I, I would actually like to, re to reach out to people and have some conversations. And, you know, so just beyond the activism problem, really go into the archive and look at how it has been systematically weaponized to benefit white folks in ways that, I mean, I think, oh gosh, I should, I should have looked up his name. Um, not, I think the last MacArthur Genius Awards, there's an African-American academic who has done all his work on how uh, black families have been divested, deprived of their property rights. And a lot of it has to do with, um, historically black families, you know, not trusting white lawyers and white record keeping to protect, you know, to protect their property rights. So just to, to counterpose how the same system has ended up with very different results. So I wanna, you know, use my own family, talk to people who are supposedly my own people and pose some tough questions which got me back to thinking about what's going on in Oklahoma. And you know, we, I, I think a lot of people are aware now, thanks to the Watchmen, that next year um, or 2021 will be the, the centenary anniversary of the Tulsa massacre when you know, a, a, a very prosperous black community was destroyed by white people. 
Uh, and one thing that made that community called Greenwood so prosperous is they were involved in the early oil industry. They did other things too, for sure, but they owned mineral rights. They serviced the oil companies and that generated a lot of wealth. But the research that I've been able to do remotely online, the, those prominent individuals have been completely erased from the record. And I'm really interested to find out how that happened uh, if no one's already done the work. So yeah, there's a, this is this is clearly a research project without you know the the artwork, but just to you know give people a sense of uh, you know where I'm headed, and if they want to find out more, reach out to me. I'm ha happy to talk. Um, and if there are any land owners in Pennsylvania who have found fighting frackers challenging. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I am certainly happy to share what I have learned and will continue to learn as I engage with Pennsylvania more specifically uh, going forward. Well, before we end our conversation, I'm also curious to hear, how does this project relate to your other artistic works? And how do you address ecological issues in your work in photography, sculpture, video, and textiles? Yeah, I, I've done quite a bit of uh, environmental work. Uh, it can, you know, what might be specifically related to climate change or not over the last several years, primarily in sculpture. Yeah, I've done, I've worked with a lot of trees and outdoor installations. Um, these are much more recognizably art projects. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, these are, you know, art things sitting in fields that people go visit and, and interact with, but one project is I completely encased three living trees in a white heat shrink plastic and they're installed on the campus of uh, SUNY Purchase. Uh, the project is entering its fourth year and the best possible outcome for that project is something I did not anticipate where here's this sculpture and this is at the middle of a college campus and how students have activated it by using it as a platform for their own interventions. Oh, you know, wow. you know, and I, I mean, I, I really enjoy that. Um, and I discovered that's, that's one of the, the best things about having open-ended projects or, or, or just participation turns them into open-ended projects. So I'm not, you know, I, I started as a, actually a classical realist painter uh, and I've gotten away from that, you know, where we fetishize the archival quality. Now I don't care if it falls apart. You know, I, my my work is uh, sits uncomfortably in a in a gallery setting, but what I think, you know, I gain personally, uh, and uh, by letting it be, you know, let these projects just be feral, <laughs> uh, is I think enriches the spaces they're in. Uh, and makes art less precious, which I think is important because what people encounter in the media is, you know, you know, you know, auction records getting broken, and that's, I mean, that's not my world. Um, so I, I think the interaction is is becoming a much bigger part of of my work. And I never in a thousand years thought I would be a performance artist. 
I, I would have been happy to be behind everything. I was happy to be anonymous. I didn't care. But now, uh, just putting my my own body into a context and manipulating it and encouraging interaction has become uh, a more prominent part of my work. But I think also what, what I'm trying to do in my own work is, is what your collective is trying to achieve. When I started my project, you know, at that weird transdisciplinary hybrid space, because when I first started talking about this project with my friends would be like, I'm not even sure this is art. <laughs> is this art? Is this a thing? And I still ask myself that question and I don't think it matters because the art context provides so much freedom and fluidity. Uh, and, and to this, you know, participating in the mineral rights ownership that's fairly close-ended, but what, how people are communicating back to me about how they find meaning in it is, is super, super beautiful. Uh, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Oh, no. Thanks for the conversation. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Before we sign off, I wanted to share some information with you all about our upcoming reading group. As part of the Unraveling the Anthropocene project, this public reading group will begin its monthly sessions in February and will conclude in July. You can join us for as many sessions as you'd like, and you can complete as many readings as you'd like. We invite you all to be part of a casual but enriching discussion of the subjects that comprise the overarching project, race, environment, and pandemic. Find out more on our website, including the list of readings and films, and how to join us on Goodreads. Unraveling the Anthropocene is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. This series was made possible by sponsorships from the University Park Allocation Committee, the Department of Comparative Literature, the Rock Ethics Institute, the Humanities Institute, and the Center for Global Studies. We at LAC thank you all so much for your support. This episode was produced by Merva Tabor and Hannah Matangos. Be sure to subscribe and follow along wherever you get your podcasts and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more information about the episodes and also our upcoming reading group. See you next time.